is Kristen Cobes Dumay. She's the author of Jesus and John Wayne. I believe she needs no introduction, but she's professor of history at Calvin University. Kristen, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be with me uh, and oh. have this conversation today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. It's it's nice to to meet a little bit virtually, uh, a little bit better than over Twitter, but uh, it's 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 an honor to be with you today. Great, excellent. Yeah, Melissa and I are huge fans. We enjoyed reading Jesus and John Wayne, though. I, I'm not sure enjoy. I mean, uh, I guess you know if you enjoy sort of rage, then uh, I, I guess enjoy would be the right word. Yeah. It's, it's cathartic. Um, it felt cathartic to write. There was a little rage that went into some of those chapters. You could probably sense that, but you know, it's, it, it's empowering to, to put it all into words, to hold it up, uh, to examine. And, uh, so, uh, it, it's better that way than just letting it fester. Yeah. Cathartic. That's, that's, uh, yeah. That's an app way of putting it. So, so speaking of this, putting these things into words, right. And, and uh, laying it all out. You, you, you wrote recently about the way that dissent is silenced in evangelical spaces. And so I wonder how you've experienced sort of being in a, at an institution where you're allowed to speak much more freely than, say, a Southern Baptist Seminary professor, for example, right? So what's that been like? You know, there, there's, a, there's this sort of group of scholars that are, that, that are, achieving a kind of incursion into the popular evangelical imagination that seems to me to be unprecedented. Uh, so what's, yeah, what's that been like being a part of that sort of movement? Yeah, I, I, that's a good way of describing it. I, so I'm a tenured professor at Calvin and, uh, I, I honestly didn't know uh, what the limits would be uh, because you think you understand, you think that you know that you have academic freedom. And, and then at the same time, you know, you also understand how power works. And we've got some very powerful um, uh, conservative donors and constituents at Calvin. Uh, you know, we have buildings named after DeVos's and princes and, and so on. Um, so it was a bit of a question as I was writing uh, the book. I, I had colleagues come up and say, you know, so is this book going to get you fired? And <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but but I just I knew it was the book I needed to write. I didn't think it would. Um, I have so much more protection, uh, not only than other uh, faculty members at many other Christian uh, institutions, but also, um, you know, pastors. Pastors, I think, are really constrained uh, by the members of their congregations and uh, the, the denominations or authority structures, um, but, but really it's, it's often just kind of the pressure from the bottom up. Um, and so I, I knew I had a responsibility and an opportunity at the same time that I could uh, speak truth. I, can, I would say also that, um, you know, I, I ran up against somewhat to my surprise, some pressures inside of academia as well. Uh, that the historiography or uh, you know, just the history of evangelicalism has long been dominated by evangelical historians themselves. And many are close friends and mentors uh, of, of, my, of mine. And so, uh, you know, I, I first started presenting on this, this topic uh, at, in academic settings three or four years ago. And it caused a bit of a stir and not for the reasons that you might think. Uh, it was okay for me to call out masculinity and patriarchy and in all of that, but um, in redefining evangelicalism and in claiming that evangelicalism was not at its heart, 
a, a rather lovely theological tradition that could sometimes, you know, um, um, take some wrong turns. Um, but the evangelicalism was at its heart, this cultural and, uh, you know, historical movement, and we had to examine it as such. Uh, that was actually quite controversial, uh, still is in some uh, academic circles. And I think that there um, was a sense among evangelical historians for a long time that they had an obligation both to kind of speak to evangelicals, but also to uh, present a pretty positive picture of evangelicals to the outside world, to the scholarly world. And, um, and I think that, uh, you know, I was breaking that rule in some ways. And I think that caused some disruption. And so there were pressures inside uh, kind of professionally uh, that I encountered. And then, um, you know, also within Christian communities. Uh, but honestly, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a historian and, and what we do is we, we try to write a true story. We try to tell the story that our research presents us with, and we try to tell that story well. And then ultimately, I think we, we just have to live with that and see what consequences that brings. How surprised, if at all, were you by the percentage of white evangelicals who voted for the Republican presidential candidate in 2016? Because I think, I, th I think this gets to, I was shocked. <laughs> I'm a philosopher, right? And, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I, uh, look, I mean, I grew up in these spaces and I know people uh, firsthand and secondhand who are in places of influence in these spaces. And so I don't, I, I'm not, I don't think it's all, you know, or I, I didn't think that it was all uh, totally every, everyone's operating in good faith, right? I'm not that naive, but, but I, I did think that there were certain core convictions that were motivated by theology, right? Um, and that that would cause things to break down in a slightly different, I, I thought, I thought, honestly, I thought that, that what we were gonna see in 2016 was the dissolution of the Reagan coalition. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought. And I, so, I, I, and so I thought that, you know, make America great again. I thought, I was like, wow, what a rich irony. You know, <laughs> this is gonna be the end of it. And, and I was stunned. Um, I take it, well, you, you know, I've asked the question, how, how surprised were you? So I think it was back in 2014, I started a new project and that was uh, looking into the religious formation of Hillary Clinton. <laughs> So in 2014, 2015, 2016, I was actually researching uh, Clinton's faith formation, how she was talking about faith on the campaign once she declared for president. And I was tracking very closely her utter lack of appeal among white evangelicals. And so, uh, so that gave me a, a slightly different perspective, I think. I mean, I, I, I saw the vitriol. I, I felt it because uh, I have to say, you know, people think that I must get a lot of hate mail for Jesus and John Wayne. I don't. I get very, very little negative feedback and I get a ton of incredible letters like every day uh, from evangelicals themselves. However, when I would write something as simple as, you know, Hillary Clinton is a Christian. <laughs> I got threatening phone calls in my, my office. Uh, so, so I, I could see that, you know, uh, evangelicals weren't going to move uh, much at all in 2016. Um, that said, you know, that it was hard to decipher in that moment is, is this the nose holding, uh, you know, uh, you're pushing us up against the wall because we cannot possibly 
possibly vote for Hillary Clinton. Uh, so what I uh, when, when this really sunk into me, 2016 vote was not a huge surprise, uh, but I had expected a little bit of remorse. I had expected a little bit of, okay, Hillary Clinton's done. Donald Trump is our president. You know, the threat has been vanquished now. Now, now let's rein him in a little bit. Now let's, let's, you know, and, and there was none of that. Absolutely none of that. So that's actually the period, the months after the election that I was watching extremely closely. And that's what I saw kind of reinforce the narrative that I had already kind of come to from earlier research that uh, evangelicals were not betraying their values as much as the media thought they might be. And as much as some evangelical leaders were lamenting uh, that we weren't properly understanding what those core values actually were. And if you go back in history, you can see that, you know, instead of family values, what we really need to be thinking about is at the core of family values uh, is the, the ideal of, of, uh, of white Christian patriarchy. And uh, that white patriarchy is once, once we acknowledge that that's at the center of family values, then a lot of things fall into place. And by the time we get to 2016, it's not this huge contradiction. Uh, it's in many ways, uh, exactly what we should have expected. I think part of my surprise was my, uh, how to put it, my, my, well, my ignorance about how, about how this patriarchy bit functions. And I, I have had to issue many an apology to my wife over the last few years, because when we uh, were dating, she uh, described some, some perspectives, right? So, so we, my wife and I both grew up in sort of pastor's families in evangelical what uh, spaces. And so we heard a lot of similar messaging, mm-hmm. but my takeaway, I don't know, I guess I conceived of the, the whole submission thing is some, something like this. I, I thought of it as like this, just a pragmatic thing, right? Like yeah. sometimes you're gonna have two people yeah. who uh, can't reach an agreement on something that requires, uh, that re- where you, ha- you have to, just as a practical matter, you have to make a decision, right? Like where are the kids gonna go to school or something like, you know? And so just, just as a practical matter, because I guess somebody has to be the decider, you know, uh, uh, but but then of course that's that would in and of itself disclose a failure of leadership. The fact that it even came to that, right, right. right. That was my impression. You know, yeah, yeah. And then my wife was telling me some genuinely crazy stuff. Yes, that exactly. she was told, and I was like, sweetheart, I think you just, I think you just like know more crazy people <laughs> than most people know. Like that's not, <laughs> and and I just the last few years I've just been like, wow, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love that you told that story because this is really important um, to get back to your kind of my um, butting heads with some fellow historians, again, who evangelicals writing about the history of evangelicalism. Let me also add that all of these were white evangelical men. And I have to be careful here because I don't want to say, you know, white evangelical men have nothing to add to this story. Not at all. I mean, they've written amazing books, uh, but they're also obviously white evangelical male intellectuals because they're writing books, right? Um, And so their encounters with this world are, um, are of a certain type, right? With other generally highly educated elite evangelicals, and they are not going to be confronted with 
the kind of boundaries of race and gender and how that operates within evangelical circles personally. So they can move freely in and out of all sorts of circles. They can be admired by, uh, you know, folks in the gospel coalition and they can be invited to speak and they can, um, you know, be invited to come, uh, you know, pulpit supply. A lot, a lot of my classmates in graduate school, evangelical men studying religious history were happened to have an MDiv and, you know, that was just a thing. And, and, um, and so they could move in and out of these spaces and be, um, you know, hospitably received and never realized that there were some pretty high walls that were built. Um, so I could never go into those spaces as a woman, as their peer and be received in the same way, no matter what I was saying really, um, uh, or at least if I was saying similar things to what they were saying, it just wasn't open to me. And then we can talk about race as well. Uh, right? If you talk with a lot of white evangelicals, race does not matter to them. Their faith is just plain old, Christianity. Their values are just Christian values, but talk to any person who is not white, who has spent any time in white evangelical spaces, and they will tell you how much race matters. And, uh, but this, this, I mean, this is privilege. This is, it's invisible. Uh, if, if you are in a, in the privileged categories and it's really hard, like you have to work to make these, um, these boundaries visible you have to work to see them. So your wife saw them, your wife ran up against them. I run up against them all the time. Anybody who's not white will be running up against them. If you are white male and have a certain amount of power uh, in evangelical spaces as an intellectual, for example, uh, you need to work. And, and what that means is you need to listen to other people and you need to take them seriously and you need to, to understand what their experience is. And so part of what Jesus and John Wayne is really is it's, it's telling the story um, but not from somebody at the center of power. So what does this look like for women? What does this look like for uh, maybe victims of abuse? Not, not just for people who are at the centers of power. And then maybe ultimately we have to shift our understanding of who in fact is at the center of evangelical power. And maybe it's not actually those intellectual leaders who have long thought they were at the center of the evangelical movement, folks at Wheaton College, at Christianity Today, um, because in, in many ways, this is a kind of populist movement. And uh, what we see, what we've seen in the last four or five years are you know, people who thought they were leaders of evangelicalism really finally running up against the limits of their own power. And so I think there's a lot of soul searching going on right now, trying to understand what they miss. But again, it was so easy for them to be missing this because they were in places of privilege. It seems like what, what's happening at the moment, right, is, is, is a, I mean, in this conversation, right, is a demonstration of something that I see a lot of folks in conservative white evangelical spaces pushing back on, which is this idea that there are insights that people who have different kinds of experiences can offer, right? So yeah. I've got academic training. And so I read things charitably and I'm apt to look at certain things and say, oh, this must be what they mean by this. Yeah. Because if they meant this other thing, that would be crazy. And that person's <laughs> not crazy, right? <laughs> And, and uh, because of I'm in a position where I don't confront these that like the crazy bits, yes. the reality of the crazy bits, yes. right? Exactly. Uh, there was a level of cynicism that I was just lacking <laughs> because I, I, you know, and, yeah, and, yeah. Um, and, and what I, what's happening, what I feel happening and, and what I see other people going through who, who 
inherited their faith from this evangelical tradition is just coming to grips with the fact that a certain level of cynicism is entirely appropriate. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, cynicism is one word. Another way of thinking about it is, um, you know, I, I, I keep running up against this tendency within evangelical circles to want to isolate uh, evangelicalism from you know, the, the darker sides. So um, it, it's a kind of ahistorical um, uh, um, idealism that evangelicalism, there's true evangelicalism. And so people who are, I don't know, supporting Trump or, or people who are abusing power or, you know, like take anything that you don't like about who the evangelicals are doing, um, though they have, they're not the real evangelicals right? Um, maybe not even real Christians. And so evangelicalism remains this lovely, pure tradition of essential Christianity. But what critics are suggesting is there is no ideal. I mean, there's a spiritual ideal. And so the theologians can, can fight for that or argue that there ought to be. But historians, we have to look at what we have in front of us. And I think so do evangelicals themselves. So I think a question that Jesus and John Wayne raises is, um, can a kind of pure religious tradition be extricated from its historical and cultural presentation? Um, or have they grown up together so tightly? And so, you know, I push back against some historians, evangelical historians who, who are saying, you know, what we need is we need more discipling in the church, you know? So, and, and I wish that the media, they'll say, would just focus on the good stuff that evangelicals do. Like they care a lot about families, right? And they do a lot of Bible studies and they aren't just out there, you know, um, screaming about politics. And, and what I, what I say is yes, Let's look at what they're reading in those Bible studies. Let's look at what discipling looks like. Let's look at what they are evangelizing people into. And there is no pure, isolated theological tradition that they are converting people into. They are converting people into and discipling people into this cultural uh, um, reality. Uh, and it has political expressions and it's got very personal uh, expressions. And this is what we're talking about. And this is evangelicalism. And, and so it's, it's not just cynicism, but I think it's, it's understanding how religion works. Um, and religion is not some isolated theological kind of belief system that you just say, yep, I believe that. And then you get put in this box. It's, a, it's, it's how you live and it's what you believe is it finds expression in these daily values. And it has to do with gender and it has to do with race and it has to do with politics. And this is your religion. I guess by temperament, I, I'm inclined toward the idealist way of assessing things or like yes. rational. So, so the, the, the example that comes to mind is when I was in high school, I would leave my parents' driveway, right? I'd back the car out and often I would run over the trash can because I just, I would, you know, it was the trash can sort of right behind my car. And so I got in the car one night and I thought to myself, I had the presence of mind to think, okay, I don't want to run over the trash can. So what I did, no joke, I sat there for a good 30 seconds plus and thought, okay, what day of the week is it? And when is the, what, what day is the trash pickup scheduled? And then, I mean, only, only after a bit did it occur to me, I could just get out of the car and look <laughs> to see if the trash can was there, right? <laughs> 
and and I I mean I don't yeah I don't I mean I don't know if that example is after or not but that, but it occurs to me that that's kind of like what's in order here yeah. right it's yeah. like let's look yeah and 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 see what's going on well exactly and I mean that's why too with the <laughs> when you're writing a book you have a lot of critics voices in your mind you know and I anticipated a lot of critics saying uh-uh this isn't my evangelicalism this no I don't know what you're talking about here <laughs> that has not been the response to this book, right? Uh, you know, I think maybe one or two people have said, I don't know what you're talking about. The evangelicals I know are lovely people. And my experience has not been this at all. Uh, you know, probably like 500 to one, the responses that I've seen are, this is the story of my life, right? This is everything, you know, I have all of these books on my bookshelves. I have experienced this. I've heard from, you know, so many uh, survivors. I have heard from just people who have really um, been harmed in various ways by running up against uh, the ideology that I trace here, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And, and so I think that um, there is a reality here that, that I'm describing. And at the same time, I'm interested in people who say, this is, I don't know what you're talking about here, right? It's not that those responses aren't valid, but I love to just ask a couple of follow-up questions and, and, and learn, okay, how were you positioned with respect to evangelicalism? Actually, one of the first people who said this to me was when I was presenting this research uh, three or four years ago already. And, you know, I, so I said, you know, can I ask about your socioeconomic background? And she's like, well, you know, very upper middle class. And, you know, can I ask, you know, where, where, where you're, you're from and uh, Wheaton, right? And so her exposure to evangelicalism was elite, upper middle class Wheaton. Much of what I describe here is low brow, middle brow, middle brow, right? You know, uh, and so, you know, right, right there, I was like, okay, that makes it a lot of sense, right? And the, I absolutely believe this was not your evangelicalism. But then the, the next question is, you know, uh, how does your evangelicalism, which is real and which is legitimate, how does it connect to this evangelicalism? And that's another theme that runs through the book is me kind of asking this question of, okay, I'm going to hold up some of the crazy stuff here. <laughs> and there's a lot. And then I'm going to find some of the quote unquote outliers, you know, somebody like Bill Gothard. I had no intention of including Bill Gothard in this book upfront. Uh, I thought, you know, that's going to discredit it. He's, he's radical, fringe, extremist. I don't want Bill Gothard in this. And I kept running into evangelicals, you know, normal, ordinary, respectable evangelicals who would say, you are going to include Bill Gothard, aren't you? You have to, you have to. And so I understood his, his influence ran deep and it was much broader than I understood. So then what I end up doing in the book is I have a chapter that sets Bill Gothard up in a conversation with James Dobson. And James Dobson, nobody's gonna argue he's not mainstream evangelicalism, right? But then when you hold Dobson and Gothard together, you can see the powerful affinities between what Dobson is saying in the 1970s and what Gothard is saying. And I think that, that tension, that relationship and those affinities are absolutely critical to understanding evangelicalism today uh, and relationship between you know, mainstream, quote unquote mainstream and fringe. Um, I do that throughout the book with figures like uh, Doug Wilson, Mark Driscoll, you know, how Christianity Today is platforming them, how John Piper is covering for them. And so just to show how this works. 
so that you've, you've got some folks who seem to be fringe, who are getting a lot of airtime in quote unquote mainstream evangelicalism so that by the 2000s and certainly by 2016, I think the question presents itself, what is mainstream evangelicalism and where is that center? And I think increasingly we have to concede that it is not at Wheaton College and it is not in the editorial offices of Christianity Today um, or, you know, InterVarsity Press. Would that it were, I, I don't want to in any way diminish their importance. Um, and, you know, they do really good work. But um, I think I think that's really this kind of reckoning that people are um uh, encountering right now, what is evangelicalism ultimately, and um, and how have even quote unquote respectable mainstream evangelicals been complicit in the reality that we have before us? Some folks who some people listen to in evangelicalism are transparently corrupt. And, you know, sometimes you sort of have to wonder, right, is this person arguing in good faith? Are they, are they, are they a bit dense? You know, this kind of thing. Uh, but then, but then that sometimes it's, it's, I mean, you talk about it, Jesus and John Wayne with the fraud around, uh, you know, supposed uh, ex-Islamic terrorists, yes. converts, right? And, and it, it's, you, you, uh, you sort of track down, like you go back to like who, who started promoting these people and like, they know. They know. So yep. what, what, what is that about? What is that about? Exactly. We need to be, okay, here's where we can be cynical, right? We need to be much more cynical, much more critical. And um, there is a strong tendency within evangelical organizations to, insist on assuming the best of those in power. Um, and I mean, the truth is there are many well-intended people uh, with good hearts who are part of evangelicalism. Absolutely. Probably the vast majority of them. And yet they are participating in a movement and in organizations and in structures that are not blameless and they are giving their power and the power of their good intentions to leaders who are abusing those and intentionally so. And so I think we all need to be much more critical of uh, our own circles of, uh, and, and particularly those who are wielding power because it is so easy as a leader to justify your own grasp for power. And it's so easy in Christian circles to give that the, the cover of goodness. And you know what we're doing, this is for the witness of the church. And this is uh, the ideal of deference, right? Of deference to authority that is taught, actively taught, insisted upon in very concrete ways in many evangelical circles. And, and it has an effect. I mean, I'm, I'm actually uh, involved in a little bit of a, um, a controversy in my own local Christian school right now. It's not actually public, but here we go. Uh, and what's really interesting is um, 
how the language that's being used to stifle dissent right now, the language that's being used to tell people who are asking questions about what is happening, what has happened, uh, about some of the policies and practices of the institution, what uh, those folks are being told is, how dare you question the intentions? Don't you know we are good people? Um, how can you not trust us? This is terrible what you are doing. What about Christian unity? Right. And I see that I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work on me um, because it's just so plain. And, and that this language has been used in so many circumstances to uh, protect and perpetuate incredibly harmful practices. And so we all need to be suspicious of that language. We need to be suspicious when we are tempted to justify our own actions with that kind of language. And we need to be open to self-criticism and to the criticism of others. And um, I mean, to me, I'm a Calvinist. <laughs> so I, I grew up with, you know, teachings of original sin, total depravity. Uh, we're all fallen and be on your guard. And what's just striking to me, and I, and I bring this up a couple of times in the book, is that that, you know, uh, a lot of evangelicals are also on board with, you know, sin and depravity and, and so on. And many um, are Calvinists and reformed. Um, and yet somehow that doesn't apply to powerful white men who are wielding patriarchal power. And, and to me, that's exactly where it needs to apply most. Okay. So now, now we're getting into my, to, to my <laughs> area of research when we're talking about institutions and, and the, and the moral salience of institutions. And so I, I thought, I have thought, Okay, the moral questions around uh, structures and institutions are more complicated than mm -hmm. questions of individual morality, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, what should I do? What should she do? That's, I'm, that's, that people are accustomed to thinking in, in those terms, right? Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. then when we look at, a, at, an, at an institution and we say, wait a second, maybe the rules are bad because here's how the rules are, are operating, right? Yeah. Then all of this, I like, I don't know what, I, and I, and I, I guess I thought like people just needed to be informed of this and they would go, oh, wow, that's interesting. Okay. Um, hadn't really thought of that before. That is, that's not been um, entirely the response, right? No. Uh, it's, it's like, there's, it's, there's this leap that people, for some reason, evangelicals in particular, some of those I've interacted with mm -hmm. are, well, first, the first step is denial that there's any kind of institutional problem. And then the move that, that's being made as of, I, don't, I started seeing it last summer, I guess, was like, yeah, institutions can be bad, but we still just need to focus on individuals. <laughs> what? Right. What, so that, so we disciple people and then they change the institutions when they're, but like, I don't, you just change them. That's how right. you change institutions. You just do it. Right, right. And, 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 you know, and it's institutions and it's, it's individual agency within institutions, right? We're all making choices uh, when we are part of institutions and we've all been making these choices a very long time. A lot of pastors that have been talking to me since this book released have shared how they've been making choices all along to stay quiet, strategically quiet. They've justified it because, you know, that's what pastors are supposed to do and pastors aren't supposed to alienate their flock and, you know, who's going to minister to these people. And plus, yes, they will be out of a job and where would they go? Cause this is all that they're trained to do. And they're, they're, there's all these things. Um, but it's not just institutions, even it is very much. Um, it's also relationships. 
It's mm-hmm. also, uh, you know, so there's a lot of people who haven't wanted to speak truth because they haven't wanted to disrupt personal relationships. They, ha- mm-hmm. they like their church home. They don't want to leave their church. They don't want to disrupt things. They don't want to offend somebody. Um, they don't want to shake up family relationships because that is a very real thing right now. Um, right. These divides run very deep. And so we are all making decisions every single day about what we say and what we don't say and to whom we're willing to say it. And, and then that extends also to, um, you know, outside of institutions, understanding evangelicalism, evangelicalism is about institutions and there are important denominations and parachurch organizations, but it's more than that. It's networks, right? It's networks, it's distribution networks, it's, it's this consumer culture, um, but it's also very much these relationships. And so you've got relationships between powerful individuals and then slightly less powerful and then all the way on down and you've got alliances and you've got folks who blurb each other's books. You've got Christian influencers and, uh, <laughs> I know this now because first I studied it and now that Jesus and John Wayne has come out, I I have my own platform of a certain size, much smaller than kind of real Christian influencers, but I see how this world works. And once you kind of have an in, then people who are more powerful will come and say, Hey, come onto my platform a bit. And then you have this kind of relationship of, you know, obligation of, well, thank you for that. So I want to promote you back. And, um, and then what that looks like is also defend you if you need defending. And, um, I think we just all have to be ruthlessly honest with ourselves of what discomfort are we willing to experience personally? Uh, what losses or, or just lack of opportunities are we willing to embrace professionally for those of us who are in this business and, and just be ruthlessly honest with ourselves and not justify compromising, um, our understanding of what is true and necessary for the sake of, oh, but, but I can get my message out that way, or, you know, I can, I'll do good with this. And um, this is such an opportunity. I don't want to pass up. So I think this is a reality uh, because of what evangelicalism is and how evangelicalism works, but it's also kind of the way the world works. Well, King sized it up in the letter from Birmingham jail, didn't he? The, the, the problem is the, is the white moderate. Yeah. It is. It is. Who, who can't endure disruption. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, that and, looks- and, and so people keep getting, people keep getting uh, oppressed, abused. It's like, how many, how many more people will be victims of abuse yeah. while we refuse to take a sober look at institutions, at individuals in power exactly. uh, and hope that what, maybe the change comes 10 years from now. Well, how, what happens in those 10 years? I mean, it won't come 10 years it won't come. from now, incidentally, but even if it did. Yep. Oh. Yep, exactly. This is depressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, but, but this is an interesting moment though too, because all of what you said is true. And um, at the same time, the events first of 2016 obviously started to shake things up. Uh, but then 2020, the election, where we saw this all over again. Has anything changed? No, nothing really has changed. And then, of course, the events of January 6, 2021. That has shaken at least some white moderates, right? That has shaken, oh, not to mention you know, the, the, the summer of 2020 with uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. And really just confronting again, over again, the reality of racism. 
And all, all of those things together, you know, I have seen movement within white evangelical circles. I have seen folks who for a long time had been quiet, deciding to speak out, uh, you know, maybe just on their, on their personal Facebook page, maybe just to family members and everybody's, you know, kind of approaching this in their own way, um, different, uh, at, at a different speed, but, and it's hard for me to gauge you know, what percent we're talking about, but I, I certainly, given the nature of my work um, and, and the role that Jesus and John Wayne is playing in all of this, I tend to hear from a lot of these people. And uh, the courage that's required is real. Uh, it, is, um, it is causing disruption. And I have seen a lot of people who are taking the next steps, who are, who are earnestly trying to figure out what those next steps are. And so I think it's important to, to find ways to embolden people who are doing that because it will come with costs. And one of the things that I found in my own work is that by, by doing this work, I have lost relationships. I have, you know, I have paid different costs and it has caused a lot of stress and anxiety in different moments, a lot. At the same time, every, every step I've taken um, that has brought some loss has also brought new connections, new relationships, um, a new sense of community. And, you know, to go back to, to King, we can talk about a beloved community that is incredibly life-giving. It is, that is where our source of, of courage comes from by being in community with others who are doing this hard work. Um, with others who are very different from us, but others who are ultimately rooted in love. And I have absolutely felt that. And so in terms of cost benefits, in terms of prices, the prices that I've paid, and then, and then, uh, you know, what I've received, uh, it, it's definitely, you know, heavier on the what I've received through this because of the people I've been connected to because of the things I continue to learn and because of the way in which the courage of others inspires me every single day. And so there is loss. There's, there are real things to fear. Um, but there's also a lot to, um, to look forward to. And, and so I think that's important to hold that out for people who are taking some of those cautious first steps. So, so I'm sure that some folks you hear from about Jesus and John Wayne would say something like the following. Your book has caused me to question everything about the context in which my faith developed. And so now I'm wondering sort of what's left of it. And uh, I'm in sort of a wilderness. How, what, what's your reaction to that? Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Cause I, I did a, a radio show on Christian radio a couple of weeks ago, um, down in Florida. And afterwards, one of the hosts who was conservative, uh, said, uh, is, is something very much like that. Like, what do you hope to do to people with this book? Like what's left? <laughs> and that, that kind of surprised me because I actually, I, um, to me, the problem isn't what I'm, it isn't that I'm describing this world. The problem is this world. And people are running up against it. They have been for decades in thinking that it is just them or thinking that this is Christianity, right? But by holding it up for this kind of scrutiny in showing how what has been packaged and sold as just Christianity 
is actually a whole lot more um, than that, that there's a lot of baggage that doesn't have to be you know, Christianity. And in fact, I'm arguing this is the corrupted the faith part. Actually, much of this goes against what I understand to be biblical Christianity. So I think that there is a kind of moral center to this book. Uh, and that that's apparent to most readers that they they read this and don't, uh, don't want to throw away Christianity, but they do want to throw out all of the trappings that have distorted Christianity. Um, to me, the moral center of the book is actually the quote that I have from Rachel Den Hollander towards the end, because so much of what I um, uncover has to do with kind of this militancy, this us versus them militancy that really ends up defining uh, Christianity and defining the posture of Christians. And it's always, again, um, justified with the language of, you know, good things. We need to protect Christianity. We need to uh, protect the witness. And um, and Den Hollander just cuts through all of that and says, you know, Jesus does not need your protection. God does not need your protection. God just asks for your obedience. And what that looks like is to do justice. And so, um, although, you know, there's, there's a lot of really disheartening material in this book, there's a lot of terrible things that have been done in the name of Christ. But I think that, you know, running through that, the only reason I'm able to critique it is because I think it actually goes against the way of Christ. And so I think that that kind of moral center does in fact come through to many readers. And I think it's really important that those of us who are Christians, uh, who are, you know, quote unquote, Bible believing Christians, even that we are not afraid to look this tradition in the eye and that we are the ones out front saying, this is not right. Uh, because if we are not, then yes, then it will be left in the hands of others. I mean, first of all, if we aren't, then we're just not being true, right? It's just a, it's just a question of truth. It's not even strategy. Um, as I wrote this book because I thought it was true. Uh, but then there is a strategy, strategy too. If you're really worried about that, if you're worried about giving evangelicalism a bad name, first of all, that's fine. I don't care about giving evangelicalism a bad name because evangelicalism is not the church of Christ. It doesn't own it. I think evangelicals often forget that because they've been taught that. And so the crisis that many evangelicals are feeling right now feels like a crisis of Christianity. It is not. Christianity has always flourished outside of evangelical circles, but that's something that evangelicals have not um, owned. Right. And so, so if you're feeling a crisis right now, I'd say um, go visit a black church. Go visit, uh, go visit any church outside of evangelicalism and um, remind yourself that, you know, the work of Christ and the body of Christ has never been contained within the walls of evangelicalism. And then you can relax a little bit, right? You can say, oh, yes. So then, yes, by all means, let's reform evangelicalism. But you know what, if it's, if it's beyond reform at some point, that that's okay. Um, it, it's not. The, the church of Christ. Right. And, and if you have a, a Christian faith and if you believe in the power of the spirit, and if you believe in the sovereignty of God or any of these things, then just relax. God does not need your protection, right? We're, we're called to be faithful. So what does that look like in our moment, in our place? So to some extent, evangelicalism in the sense of a culture or a cultural phenomenon, right. Is, uh, and I think whether you agree that this is the best, the essence of evangelicalism or not, I think, mm -hmm. I, I think you cannot sincerely um, 
deny that this is an aspect of what's going on, at least over the last four decades, right? Yeah. Um, to some extent, uh, it, it, it has become, for political purposes, a special interest group. And so the idea is, uh, and maybe may perhaps you could comment as a historian on how this sort of surfaced alongside and just following the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But, but uh, evangelicalism as a, as a political special interest group is just completely at odds with the morality of Christianity because we're not supposed to go vote and say, hmm, who's gonna do stuff for Christians? Whatever that is supposed to mean, right? right. Who's going to do stuff for Christians? No, we should ask to the to the best of, uh, uh, or I should say, among the options that are available, right? Which party, platform, policy, whatever is going to bring our laws and public institutions most into conformity with the objective truth about what people deserve and what we owe to each other. In other words, we should vote for justice. We shouldn't vote for 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 who's going to do stuff for Christians again. <laughs> the kind of a meaningless concept do stuff for christians politically sure yeah so i wonder yeah what your thoughts are on that yeah yeah for human flourishing right for mm-hmm. um for shalom um and you know what does that look like that's you know we have great conversations around that but um we we sh- should i think be uh, compelled to always be asking you know, how do we love our neighbors in this uh and and which, which then brings us into, you know, what, what is the common good here? Um, but that is not how evangelicals have been um, talking about politics for the last half century. It, it is not. Again, it's this us versus them mentality and a desire. Well, I mean, they'll say, sure, the common good, what's good for others is to fall in line with our values, to join us over here. That's what's good for you. So actually, you know, I've heard, I've heard, um, people close to me who said, no, you don't want to um, help the poor. You want them to get so miserable that they come crawling to the church. And if the church dispenses with that charity, then they will be grateful and they'll be more likely to be saved. Right. And so when I hear that, I'm like, oh, okay, we can just stop this conversation because we're not going to find common ground here. Um, and, and so uh, anyway, that's a bit of a digression, but you're, you're, you're characterizing evangelicalism as um how did you put it? A political um, interest group, a special interest, group. special interest group. Uh, yes, yes, that. Um, and what I find in in uh, in the history too is that it's also a cultural identity, right? Mm-hmm. So we can talk identity politics if you want to, um, and that in some ways this these cultural values um, and ideas about gender, ideas about race, ideas about who real Christians are, what they look like and what they do, uh, came before the um, partisan political mobilization. So if you go back to the 1960s, right, that's such a critical, critical decade because many of the values that evangelicals were holding to, uh, they, they had been holding to before. So, you know, in the 1940s, 1950s, uh, you see this uh, commitment to anti-communism, defending Christian America. Uh, you see, you know, a, an embrace of quote unquote gender traditionalism, uh, you know, traditional gender roles. And then um, for many, uh, particularly Southern evangelicals, uh, you know, a, a comfort with white supremacy. 
And, but that's 1950s and they weren't very different from most Americans, at least white middle-class Americans during that time with those values. This was the baby boom. This was, you know, a, a cold war consensus era and uh, the status quo in terms of, of uh, racial segregation. It's the 60s where all of that started to come undone. And it's in the 1960s that many Americans started to question any and all of those values. They started to, with the Vietnam War and the anti-war movement, started to question this ideal of Christian America, that America is always great and good, and that uh, our wars are as well. And uh, with feminism, starting to challenge these, you know, quote unquote, traditional gender roles. And then also the civil rights movement disrupted this uh, status quo in terms of white supremacy. And, um, and that hit Southern evangelicals particularly hard. And so that's when evangelicals don't necessarily change their views so much as uh, double down on these views and in an oppositional way. So it's then that they that th th these, these views really, I think, start to move to the center of their identity in this oppositional way. They understand that they have, that they are the faithful remnant and that they have this obligation, this special calling to convert America back to their understanding of, of Christianity and to defend the nation because nobody else is going to do it. And so this involves a military defense. They, they really, you know, double down on support for the military, enhance their support for the military, embrace the military, and they really take on this kind of culture wars uh, mentality with respect to domestic politics. And, and, and that all is happening and, and is, is really in place by the 1970s with the partisan political realignment, then they find that they can do all of those things within the Republican Party, and they shape the Republican Party around that as well. Um, all of which is to say, yes, it's, it's about politics, but it's also about more than politics. And, and one, of the, one of the, to me, the richest ironies here is that you see this kind of uh, notion that of, of traditional, I'm using air quotes, right? Traditional gender roles entailing that the woman really should stay at home with the kids and the man really should support the family with a single income. And this is, the, this is traditional, right? Um, you see folks who hold, take that kind of line uh, also favoring, uh, their phrase would be limited government. And the, the whole development of this structure, right? In the 19, the middle of the 20th century, uh, uh, the possibility of it was conditioned by a massive government redistribution of wealth through the Federal Housing Administration. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Mean, and the GI Bill. Talk about a welfare queen, right? I mean, exactly. Well, what? And they yep. don't, and they don't, they, and their 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 vision of like the greatest generation or whatever is that they're a bunch of you know pull themselves up by their bootstraps types. It's a bunch and of government like, handouts. Uh, yeah, I mean the government. Yeah. yeah. Because you have the yeah. you have the GI Bill, right? Um, which uh, was, I mean, his, historians have demonstrated how the GI Bill was distributed very inequitably. That because it was distributed through local offices, so African American GIs returning from World War II were, um, in almost every case, denied those benefits uh, if 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 they were in the South, which which the vast majority of them were. So that was a white racial. Uh, 
a government handout really in many ways, the GI bill. And it's funny how, you know, that entitlement got defined as, well, they earned it because they fought for, for our country, but you know, they actually got a paycheck for fighting for the country too. And um, so it was, you know, so who earns, who, who is entitled who, to entitlements really? And in many cases, certainly in the 1950s, uh, white men, and white middle-class men were the, the prime beneficiaries of uh, these government handouts. And that ends up structuring and artificially structuring our society for uh, the next decade and ever since. And yes, and that is a touchstone when people are talking about make America great again. Uh, what do they want to go back to the 1950s? Uh, this mm -hmm. quote unquote, John Wayne America, if you will, as some refer to it, the time when everything was right with the world. And yes, it's, it's important to realize that that only worked in that brief moment in time because of very active uh, government intervention that was not in any way delivered equitably. And, and so, you know, the white men are sort of prancing around thinking that they're just self-sufficient, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> And they've and they've got and they've got all these uh, under the surface, right? All of these entitlements financially, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. that that make the whole thing possible. Exactly, exactly. And it's, this, it's, this it's, kind it's of like an adolescent whose parents are paying the bills and they don't even really acknowledge that. Okay, so right? you're calling white guys adolescents now. So I'll just you know, make <laughs> that's you, but no. Well, I'm a white guy. I'm allowed to. I, exactly, you could do that. Too. You could do that. No, um, but but it's also you know worth noting that this idea of male breadwinner, the breadwinner economy, that uh, the male breadwinner and female homemaker. As a historian, I mean, I teach a course on uh, gender in U.S. history, uh, and our first entire unit is on women and labor. And we just look at the labor that women have done in American history. And we look at the labor that black women have done. And we look at the labor of colonial women. And we look at the labor of working class women in the 19th century. And we look and guess what? Women work, right? And, and that, that's a constant. Like women are always doing a lot of work. And often the same kind of work. I mean, it, it differs from time to time, but there's like kind of basic housework, which was long cons considered essential labor, right? It's, it's essential to survival in a subsistence economy. You know, the work inside the home and the work outside, you know, in, in the uh, uh, outside the door in the garden and then the fields and like all of it is essential to survival. Um, what changes with industrialization is uh, the conception of what counts as work. And so um, increasingly it's, it's going out to work and bringing back a paycheck. And you can literally see in the historical sources, the labor of women washing by hand, cooking, preserving, these things that are essential to human life get redefined as leisure, as not work, right? And so you, you can like, when you know this deeper history, then you know that women have always worked and throughout almost all of human history, that work has been considered essential labor. And it's only in the, in the 19th century that that becomes kind of redefined as nope, not work. And so by the 20th century, this is still a very recent development. And then the 1950s, you bring that as its own aberration. And you can just see how, how constructed this um, quote unquote traditional, these traditional gender roles actually are, our conceptions of what is what it means to provide. And so um, in, in is so much of the rhetoric on evangelical masculinity around this time, to be a Christian man is to be a protector and provider. 
that is the essence of Christian manhood. And the emphasis is, is a little heavier on the protector part, actually, that in the Cold War America, provider is really important, but also protector. And, and that rhetoric is just very, um, you know, it's, it's a historical artifact. It's, um, and we have to understand it as such and not as God-ordained truth since the beginning of time. Can you talk a little bit about, we, we referenced this earlier, but, but talk a little bit about this, your sense of this moment for scholars who work on uh, gender, religion, and history. Mm-hmm. There's, yeah, I mean, there's this level of, of reception that seem, it, it just, it seems like a really important moment. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, right now, the, the big question is what's going to happen next. And that's incredibly hard for a historian to, to talk <laughs> about the future. Uh, I'm much better at describing what has happened and then sounding smart about that. But it's a lot harder to venture into the future uh, territory. So I think, you know, I'm watching closely to see uh, how widespread this, you know, evangelical reckoning actually is. I know it runs very deep. I just don't know how broad. And, um, and I know that there is a kind of the gravitational pull of just staying put of, you know, the status quo of, you know, you might be unhappy, you might be a little disruptive, but then, you know, in the end, it's easier just to stay in your church because, you know, it's so disruptive. And, and so I'm, I'm not overly optimistic as much as I've been absolutely inspired by, by the hundreds of letters that I've received and by the genuine kind of soul searching and, um, uh, and reckoning that I do see in many places within evangelicalism, what that will probably look like is, is some people walking away um, from the movement, which means that those who remain will um, not be exposed to their voices of challenge as much. And, and I mean, social scientists suggest that that is in fact what has been happening and that as evangelicals leave evangelicalism, that ends up those who remain actually might be more radicalized because of that dynamic. So that's a reality I'm looking at. In terms of having Trump out of office, that's another um, variable that uh, is hard to interpret. On the one hand, historically speaking, I can say that in um, in recent decades, usually uh, conservative Republicans and conservative evangelicals, lots of overlap there, end up uh, uh, strengthening when they do not uh, control the White House. They end up raising a lot more money for their organizations, and they often end up radicalizing. Uh, But Trump was different than any other Republican president uh, before him in many ways, but one of which was that he had this uncanny ability to be able to both, uh, you know, kind of hand out power and privilege to white evangelicals um, while still amping up their sense of embattlement. And, and so he might have kind of messed with the system. So now that he's out of office, I don't know what that means because um, evangelicals were drawn to him and to him in particular because he was stoking their fears and at the same time promising them protection, ruthless protection if needed. And um, now that he's out of power, he is out of power, right? He is, he doesn't have Twitter. He doesn't have the backdrop of the Oval Office. He is not the leader of the free world. So is he going to maintain this 
image of power when he doesn't actually control the levers of power anymore? Um, that's, that's a question that I have, you know, at what point is, is, is he not going to look so strong anymore? And is he not going to be the center of this movement? And if he's not, where does the movement go? Those are open questions that I have right now in terms of the future of white evangelicalism and the future of evangelical politics and the future of the Republican party, frankly. Um, so lots of questions and very few answers uh, at this point. Well, Kristen, uh, you've been so generous with your time and I really, I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation. Oh, my pleasure. It was great to talk to you, Scott. Mm -hmm.